This is the Kineo Equipping Podcast. Well, we can get started. Uh, so today is, uh, tonight is epistles is what we're going to be walking through. So orthodoxy and orthopraxy is kind of the title of tonight. Um, the way I wanted to actually start tonight was, uh, I thought this fitting that I got to teach on the epistles because when I was in seminary, I got to go on a trip to, uh, Greece and Turkey to visit, um, a lot of the places that Paul visited and then a lot of places where he wrote letters to. And so I just, I grabbed a couple of photos from our trip. I went with Matt Hofer and Austin Ward, a bunch of people from Cornerstone Church. And so this is, <clears throat> this is a picture of, uh, actually, <laughs> Uh, the ruins of no, it's a it's a current city called Thessaloniki, uh, right? Formerly known as Thessalonica, and uh, so there's there's ruins like around there, I guess, or maybe underneath, but they can, obviously can't excavate because there's now a city there. But this is that's Thessaloniki. Uh, this is a fun site. This is actually in Philippi, and then uh, what they would say is that this is uh, uh, the place likely where Lydia was baptized. And so um, there's like a little, uh, there was like a plaque or something there that talked about that. So uh, likely this was the place she was dunked. Um, also in Philippi, uh, this was a, uh, a fun slide. I'm pretty sure in Philippines or whatever they speak in Philippi, uh, Philippi in that area, uh, I'm sure it's Greek. I think that like on that fence is something like do not enter. Um, which I'm sure Matt couldn't read. Um, but that's a, uh, so this is like a jail cell, a, um, a likely a jail cell that uh, similar to what Paul would have been in uh, when he was in Philippi, which is uh, kind of cool to see. So um, so that's the, that's like the world of Philippi. Uh, this is overlooking um, Ephesus. So Ephesus was, uh, that's Matt's Facebook profile picture. Uh, so Ephesus was actually really impressive. They've excavated a lot of Ephesus and you can see, uh, like if you go through the book of Acts, you can see, uh, even just like you can walk through Paul's narrative as, uh, he gets in conflict in Ephesus and all of those things. But, uh, Ephesus was really impressive. And then, uh, the last one here is, um, this is Corinth. So just some, uh, ruins from Corinth. So, uh, all that to say, I mean, for me, like this all, all of the, the epistles really came to life for me and the book of Acts came to life as I started going from place to place. I'm like, okay, yeah, this is literally where Paul went and a lot of this stuff happened. Uh, we got to go uh, to Athens too and um, uh, a lot of different places. So uh, anyways, there's some pictures. There's my slideshow of, of what I did. But um, when I think of epistles, this is the stuff I think of um, because these were letters written to cities, right? So when we talk about epistle, uh, we're talking about a letter. And so there's, there's your blank there. It literally means like a letter. So these are simply letters being sent from a sender to a recipient, right? They are uh, situational uh, or occasional in nature. Uh, so when we read them, uh, we always have to remember we're only hearing half of the conversation, so it would be like if a friend of mine called, my, called me right now, I picked up the phone and we had a five-minute conversation. You guys would hear half of the conversation and you'd have a pretty good idea of what we were talking about and even could probably guess what he was saying on the other end, but, but you really still only have one half of the conversation, right? Or if it's like you, you grab somebody's uh, mail and you started reading through their mail and read a letter from... Uh, somebody overseas that was good friends with them. It's like, okay, I can probably put together like their friendship and what's going on in their life right now 
but I only have one half of this story here. So, so their letters being sent, we only have uh, half of that conversation. Uh, but there are 21 epistles, so 21 of the 27 books of the New Testament are epistles. Uh, and it's essentially Romans through the book of Jude, right? So these are the epistles and letters written to um, uh, churches, to cities, to uh, uh, specific people, uh, all those things. Paul um, obviously authored a lot of them. Uh, he wrote 13 of the epistles. And uh, as we know, Paul is usually very personal, cared very deeply about the people he was writing to. Uh, the other epistle authors, we have John wrote three, right? Peter two, James one, Jude wrote one, and then whoever the author of Hebrews was uh, wrote one as well. So uh, there's obviously different categories. Uh, for example, um, like First and Second Timothy and Titus will, will be labeled as like the pastoral epistles. And so, um, so some, you can like subcategorize some of these, but in general, uh, 21 epistles from Romans uh, through Jude. Uh, the basic structure is three parts. Um, you gotta know that like, okay, not, maybe not all letters will follow this specific pattern that I'm gonna w- walk through, but in general, this is what you're gonna see. The first is you'll see the opening and uh, what you'll have is the sender. So uh, for example, Paul or James or whoever, you have the recipients. So whether it be the Corinthians, Thessalonians, uh, you have the salutation, a salutation would be something like grace and peace to you, that type of thing. And then typically a prayer to close, usually, usually Thanksgiving. Um, the body is typically the longest section, right? Uh, each pattern uh, is a little bit different. And we'll get into this in a little bit, but uh, like, like Pauline letters in the book of Hebrews, there's uh, just a level of logical progression, careful logical progression as you go through uh, the book. If you get to a book like 1 John, it's gonna be different, right? So 1 John is, is, uh, it's pretty almost like poetic in nature and it's got these like circular themes. And I remember teaching that when we uh, taught that book in in Somersault and it was like, okay, so this feels different. It's like we're rehitting some different things and he's saying it in some different ways and, um, uh, again, kind of poetic in nature. So doesn't maybe follow that exact logical progression. And then you have books like James, which would maybe be like the New Testament version of a, of a Proverbs, where uh, it's a collection of some shorter teacher, teachings on uh, a bunch of different topics, but there's not a, like a clear overall structure, if that makes sense. Uh, so that's the body. Uh, and then lastly, we have the closing. Uh, with closing, you got a lot of variants, um, whether it's travel plans, a commendation of coworkers, prayer, prayer requests, greetings, final instructions, an autographed greeting, or a grace benediction. So opening body, closing, pretty, pretty simple structure for uh, the epistles. Uh, the themes, uh, these are gonna be different from the gospels, what we talked about last week. They're not narrative in nature, right? These are letters. So um, rather than um, the Gospels, uh, as opposed to the Gospels, I guess, we're on the other side of the cross, so the focus is on the significance of Christ's death and resurrection and the implications of that on our lives, right? So um, the epistles obviously have played a major role in the formation of doctrine and Christian theology throughout church history, uh, precisely because they expound on, like, these great themes of God's saving work on the cross. Um, just some examples of some themes we see, what the the obvious theme that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promises in redemptive history, that he is Messiah uh, and Lord, son of God and the true revelation of God. 
Another theme would be that Christians uh, experience salvation by faith and faith expresses itself in a transformed life. We're gonna talk about that here in a sec. Uh, in this present age, believers suffer affliction and persecution. That, that is an, uh, a common theme throughout the epistles, but the, uh, the believers look forward with joy to the coming of Jesus Christ and the consummation of their salvation. Uh, and maybe another theme would be something like uh, beware of false teachers, right? So that, like those type of themes, um, that these people who dangerously subvert the truth of the, the gospel of Jesus Christ. So those are some themes that we'll see uh, throughout the epistles. Uh, I think one thing that's really important that I do want to hit is uh, we, we do want to always know the context. Um, so when we look at epistles, we need to know context and circumstances uh, behind these letters, the, the situation or occasion. I have this in, this in your notes, I think, but in almost every instance, epistles are addressed to specific situations facing churches uh, or situations in, uh, that he's talking to people or to churches. So for example, um, Galatians, Colossians, uh, books like Second Peter and Jude, these are letters written because false teaching had essentially infiltrated the churches. And so uh, the, the writers are writing to, to address the false teaching. Uh, first and 2 Corinthians, Paul is writing in response to a lot of problems. In 1 Corinthians 5, a man's having sex with his wife. There's abuse of spiritual gifts. There's a lot of things that, that Paul is addressing. Uh, so that's the context. So Corinth uh, actually, uh, so on that trip, we got to obviously go to Corinth. Corinth was a, um, almost like a canal. Think of like Panama Canal. Everything would go through Corinth. And so it kind of became like this mixing pot of like all sorts of people who would come. They would stay for a little while as they like put their boat into harbor or whatever, uh, however long that would be. And then it kind of almost became this Las Vegas-like scene where it was like all this crazy stuff was going on. And so that was the type of city that Corinth was. And then you have a church that's being planted in there. So it's not probably not too surprising that like the church was like, pendulum swinging all over the place. And Paul's like, holy cow, like, let's get back to like truth of the gospel and, and correct some of these things. So that's what, uh, first Corinthians was, uh, so this last one I left like the church, uh, so maybe this church was confused about eschatology end times and some believers were apparently becoming lax and, and failing to work hard. Uh, do you guys know which one that'd be? Yes. Yeah. First and second Thessalonians. So, uh, um, Paul addresses end times and stuff like that and that, and, and apparently people are starting to become a little lazy. So, so in each of these letters, there's context, right, to what's going on in these churches um, and, and why the writer's uh, writing. But again, we have to remember we're only hearing one side of the conversation. So the disadvantage we, is we only hear the one half. So our knowledge is partial and incomplete. So uh, again, only the readers who were receiving these letters knew firsthand the situation that the letter uh, writer addressed. Um, so I guess the challenge maybe on our end as readers in 2019 is we have to maybe piece it together a bit, like knowing history, knowing the context, reading the letter. Um, so for example, if you go to the book of Galatians, through Paul's argument in Galatians, um, we see that certain outsiders had infiltrated the church and were arguing that the Galatians must submit to circumcision and keep the Old Testament law in order to be saved. Right, so by Paul's argument, like you can deduce those things that somebody had come into the church and saying, yeah, um, you have to be in order to be saved. There has to be like uh, following of circumcision in the Old Testament law. Uh, Paul's argument is you're not saved by works or law; you're saved by faith in Christ. And if you read the letter, he's 
pretty frustrated pretty quick about what's going on, right? So again, false teachers have infiltrated the church. Uh, so, but you can deduce those things and be like, okay, so I think this is what's actually going on because of the argument that the, the writer's writing about. Uh, I think the implications of this, um, I think what this means is we have to really mine out of these letters uh, what's, what's going on, again, the history, the context of the church, uh, to de- determine the overall um, systematic maybe theology of what like a writer like Paul would be uh, proposing to us. So, um, so you get a good chunk of theology in Romans, but then you get to Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, right? And you can start piecing this all together and see the theology that Paul is creating in all of his letters. Uh, and I think in, in one sense, we could say like, man, we just, we don't have it all. We don't have all the pieces. I'd like to know all this other information. But I think we have to remember that we have also been given the whole counsel of God. And uh, God has revealed himself to us in his revealed word. And it's everything that we need to live the life that God's called us to live today. So it's not like, man, God shorted us. It's no, no, we have everything we need. Now we're gonna have to piece this stuff together a bit, uh, but it's everything we need. It's the whole counsel of God to live the life that God's called us to live. So uh, we trust that God in his goodness has given us all that we need to know in order to interpret the epistles adequately and to apply them uh, faithfully. Okay, so let's get a bit into like the meat and bones of uh, tonight. Um, So orthodoxy and orthopraxy, um, the major takeaway, uh, man, I remember Paul telling me this a while ago, learning this even before I went into seminary, but orthodoxy informs orthopraxy. Orthodoxy is the foundation with which that informs our orthopraxy. Orthodoxy is what we believe and orthopraxy in simplest terms is what we do. Okay, so, uh, and I put that here, I think this is good, like rich theology is followed by practical application. So there's a difference between gospel-centered transformation and legalistic behavior modification, right? So if there's orthopraxy with no orthodoxy informing it, now all of you're doing is just modifying behavior, do this and this and this, but there's no foundation as to why we're doing what we're doing. So orthodoxy informs orthopraxy. Um, so although there's not like a perfect blueprint for every epistle, uh, there's a good chunk of epistles that follow uh, the pattern that the writer will first unpack orthodoxy and then we'll walk through orthopraxy. So we'll first unpack like theology, what we believe, and then we'll talk through practical application. What do we do now in light of the foundation of what we believe? Um, so you might've picked this up a bit, maybe in your reading for the story of God class, um, but this is exactly what Carson's talking about as he's walking through the epistles. Uh, and, he, and he tackles this a bit in both Romans and Ephesians. Um, so if you guys have your Bibles, you can start turning to Romans. Um, we're gonna, and keep your Bibles out or Bible apps out. We're gonna, we're gonna uh, walk through a couple different chunks of scripture. But ultimately, Romans is arguably probably the single most important work of Christian theology ever written. That was one uh, commentary or, or kind of sentence I had read. And I'm like, oh yeah, I, I think that's probably true in a lot of regards. Um, and in the book, I mean, they talk through this, but uh, Romans 1, 18 through 320 Uh, Paul's entire argument here, I have this in your notes, shows us that we are guilty, right? Jews and Gentiles without exception are guilty before God. There's no one righteous. All have turned away and have become worthless. We have all violated our creator God and there's no fear in God in mankind. So is there common grace from God where we see people doing like awesome things? 
sure, yeah. Uh, but I thought this was good when Carson said this. Ultimately, the heart of all evil is first of all human beings. You and me wanting to go our own way and disowning the God who has made us. I was on page 171. I thought that was good. So what's happening here, so Romans 1, 18 through 320, Paul is establishing, this is in your notes, Paul's establishing the orthodoxy of our sin nature, right? The, the theology of our sin nature. We are enemies of God. This is what's inherently true of us. So he's building uh, the, the argument and the, the theology of our sin nature. Now, we go on to Romans 3, 21 through 27. And uh, I, I can't remember, this might've been the Story God book, but uh, it was either Carson or, or Grudeman or the other book I was reading, talking about Martin Luther saying that like, this chunk is the center of the book of Romans. So I just wanna read this uh, for us. I think it's always helpful to hear God's word read over us, uh, but this will be Romans 3, 21 um, through 27. But now... Apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed, attested by the law and the prophets. The righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe, since there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. God presented him as an atoning sacrifice in his blood, received through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his restraint, God passed over the sins previously committed. God presented him to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so that he would be righteous and declare righteous the one who has faith in Jesus. So it's like the gospel in a chunk of verses, right? Um, But now, verse 21, but now Jesus has come. The theology has been set that we are enemies of God. That's the orthodoxy of our sin nature and the consequences of that. But now Jesus has come in verses 22 through 23, talks about uh, because of faith in Christ and uh, the righteousness that's now available to all without racial distinction, all have fallen short of of, of the glory of God, but now righteousness is offered to all, right? So that's like the, the basis of the gospel. 24 through 25, Jesus is the propitiation of our sins. Uh, he has redeemed us. We were enslaved in our sins and headed for judgment, but Jesus has brought us back, uh, bought us back, and now uh, our freedom is secured by him. Uh, propitiation, he talks about that in the book. I, I, th- I thought he had some good words for this, but the, the sacrifice of atonement, averting God's wrath. Uh, the wrath of God is the backdrop for verse 25. Uh, but God, this is really good. God is the one we have sinned against and he is our judge and he absorbed the wrath in our place, right? So gospel, he has all of those things for us. God's righteousness is on display through the cross of Jesus Christ, verse 25 and 26. And God most powerfully demonstrates his justice and love at the cross. Okay, so that's Romans 3, 21 through 27. Uh, As you guys have probably read Romans, right? Like as Paul continues through Romans, he continues to build his case and it becomes like the snowball effect. So he starts with the problem, the sin nature of God, and then he slowly brings in and and hits hard in in Romans 3. Uh, Yeah, all of a sudden, and uh, fallen short of the glory of God, but all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. He's, he's going to uh, systematically snowball the gospel into his letter. Uh, I remember reading once, and I, I started to, to look this up. I was, I was trying to find this, but I, I'd heard once, I think it was Harvard, uh, at one point, um, 
as as part of like a, a coursework, not in like a theological way, but in a, in like almost like a writing class. They studied the book of Romans because the argumentation and the way that Paul lays out the book of Romans is so uh, thought-provoking and, and well done that Harvard's like, we're gonna study like the, the way that he built the book of Romans, which is really cool. Like even like on the, like a secular view, they're like, man, the, the way he's doing this is really helpful. And what he's doing ultimately is he's, unpacking orthodoxy. He's beautifully laying out a foundation of orthodoxy, and then he's going to point the people towards orthopraxy. So if you go to Romans 12, he turns the corner uh, a bit in, in, in chapter 12 as he says, you know, therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. Uh, Paul's turning the corner, and in Romans 12, uh, I read this at our uh, All Leaders Gathering, but 9 through 18, uh, there's a lot in just like Christian ethics, what we should do and what we should not do. You get into to Romans 13, uh, and it's uh, the Christian's uh, duties to the state, what we sh- how, should, how should we think about the state, what we should do and not do. Uh, Romans 13, eight, we get into love. Do not owe anyone anything except to love one another for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. The commandments do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet. And any other commandment are summed up by this commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Love therefore is the fulfillment of the law. So we are called to love, but it's not a, this isn't the beginning of the book. This isn't now, Everyone go in love. It's, no, no, based on everything I just talked about and Jesus's love for us by coming to the cross, hanging on the cross till it was finished and his love being displayed on the cross with his justice and mercy, because of that kind of love, that's why we love, right? So orthodoxy is always informing orthopraxy. Um, So again, I think this is in your notes. These are uh, all informed, uh, Romans 12, 13, these, these things are informed by the orthodoxy, the beginning of Romans. Okay, so that's Romans. We're not gonna be able to get, obviously get through every epistle, uh, but I just wanted to choose some of these. Um, the next one is uh, Ephesians, right? So uh, I uh, read somewhere that this is uh, John Calvin's favorite New Testament book. Um, the interesting thing about Ephesians is this book doesn't have like the same sense of urgency um, in response to crisis as maybe some of the other letters like 1 Corinthians or Galatians or some of those other books. Um, but again, in this book, he's going to unpack uh, the same type of things. He's going he's gonna to lay a foundation at the beginning of Ephesians that, that sets the, the framework for the rest of the book. So if you guys go to Ephesians chapter 2, uh, and I'll just start reading in verse 1 again. Um, think of this in the context of orthodoxy. Uh, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you previously lived according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts. And we were by nature children under wrath as the others were also. So probably very familiar uh, and similar to Romans uh, 1, 18 through three, right? And then, you get to verse four and it starts flipping into that Romans 3, uh, 21 through 27. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in trespasses. 
you are saved by grace. He also raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For you're saved by grace through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is God's gift, not from works so that no one can boast, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. So, uh, Paul, again, is setting the foundation of orthodoxy and doctrine. Um, and, it, and again, if he doesn't, uh, what happens in the second half of the book, it's just behavior modification without gospel transformation. So if you go to Ephesians 5, 1 through 5, therefore be imitators of God as dearly loved children and walk in love as Christ also loved us. Again, this, the love theme and, and gave himself for us a, a sacrificial and fragrant offering to God. But here's some like very clear do's and don'ts. In verse three, but sexual immorality and any impurity or greed should not even be heard of among you as is proper for saints. Don't, don't do those things. Obscene and foolish talking or crude joking are not suitable, but rather giving thanks. Don't do those things. Do this thing. Give thanks. For no one recognizes this. Every sexually immoral or impure or greedy person who is an idolater does not have an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. So again, uh, everything's going back to the cross. Everything's going back to the foundation. These are not behavior modification things. These are in light of what God has done for you and what I just talked about now do these things. Um, you keep going in uh, Ephesians 5, you're gonna hit the marriage context. The, I mean, the whole thing of like, husbands love your wives just as Christ, uh, and, and, and give yourself up for your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for the church. Um, again, that wouldn't make any sense if Paul didn't just lay the foundation that he already laid in the first half of the book. And so the interesting thing is like, um, so we... Uh, this is how the letters were written, but I think this is also just kind of how we live, right? So um, f- for me, uh, like I uh, sacri- self-sacrificially love my wife. Um, it's not a behavior modification where I'm like trying to do these right things. It really is an understanding of what Jesus has done for me. And in light of what Jesus has done for me, that's just, that seems like the natural thing that I would do for my wife, right? Um, and I think uh, even just, uh, man, even in my teaching, I try to avoid this. I'm, I'm sure you probably try to too, Jake. Like I, I don't want to just um, beat people into behavior mod- modification. I always want to show how like uh, who God is, what Jesus has done for us and all of those things, how that informs how we should live. I don't want to jump that gun too quickly. I want to help people connect the dots that like it is, there's a foundation of doctrine and theology and what, what we believe that informs everything that we do. Um, and so this is, that's honestly how like my preaching has changed over the years because of like that. I, um, I, I, I try to always think through gospel motivation that leads, uh, to, uh, gospel transform, uh, transformation and a gospel transformed life. All right. Uh, the last book that I'll, I'll, I'll share, uh, just wanted to do this one cause we recently went through the book, but, uh, the book of Hebrews, uh, same type of thing. The, I would argue the first 11 chapters um, set the foundation for the book, the orthodoxy of the book, uh, that Jesus is greater than the angels, than Abraham, than Moses, than the Mosaic law. He's greater than everything. And because Jesus is superior, our lives should look different. Um, It should look like something. We should be persevering, but persevering in the faith doesn't really make a lot of sense if you don't first have the 
orthodoxy or the belief that, that Paul's been laying out the whole time, that, like the supremacy of Christ and even the one-liner throughout the whole teaching series was uh, we persevere because Christ is supreme. Because Jesus is supreme over everything, we persevere in this life. Um, so again, you, you, you keep going into, into Hebrews and, and you get into these, uh, like Hebrews 13, uh, more of the imperative commands, right? Um, let brotherly love continue. Don't neglect to show hospitality. Uh, a lot of do's and don'ts as well. Um, but it's all, it all goes back to the foundation that was set um, back in uh, the, the beginning of Hebrews. So the summary is simple. Uh, it's the typical pattern we see throughout the epistles that orthodoxy informs orthopraxy. Okay, so uh, maybe the last thing uh, is what do we think about um, like letters that don't follow this pattern, right? So uh, not all letters are gonna follow this pattern. What about um, like the book of James? So um, I think James is one of the more unique examples, right, of, of books in the New Testament. Um, it's seen as a wisdom book, um, and it doesn't follow the orthodoxy and orthopraxy structure. So one commentary I was reading said that uh, James is probably one of the most, uh, among the most neglected books of the New Testament canon. And, um, but I think there's a lot in there for us. So uh, Jake handed me an article that I thought was really good, and we can spend uh, kind of the rest of our time maybe unpacking this a bit. But um, I think one of the, the things I want to highlight is there's, there is a great tension in the book of James that, that starts to beg the question, like, what happens if these epistles start to seemingly contradict themselves, right? Uh, there's a lot of writing. There's a lot going on. What happens if, like, one doctrine seems to be, like, stepping on the toes of another doctrine? How do we think about those things? Um, so, uh, this, this article that, that, that Jake gave me from Chris Bruno, uh, says, does James really contradict Paul? So, uh, in your notes, uh, you know, Romans 3.28, Paul says, we're justified by faith apart from works of the law. James would say, a person is not justified by faith alone, James 2.24. So I'm gonna go to James. I wanna read this section because we need the context for this to make sense. Always going back to context. So if you wanna turn to James 2, you can follow along on this one. All right. So James 2.14 says this. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but does not have works? Can such faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothes and lacks daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, stay warm, and be well fed, but you don't give them what the body needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith, if it doesn't have works, is dead by itself. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without works, and I will show you faith by my works. You believe that God is one. Good. Even the demons believe and they shudder. Senseless person, are you willing to learn that faith without works is useless? Wasn't Abraham, our father, justified by works in offering Isaac, his son, on the altar? Verse 21 is key. Because uh, then here comes verse 22. You see that faith was active together with his works, and by works, faith was made complete. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. 
Here it is, 24. You see that a person is justified by works and not faith alone. That gets, that, that's confusing. <laughs> let's keep going. In the same way, wasn't uh, Rahab the prostitute also justified by works in receiving the messengers and sending them out by a different route? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also, also faith without works is dead. Okay, I'll read 24 again. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Um, that's, that's confusing if, uh, uh, if you've ever done any research on Martin Luther and you start talking about we are saved by faith alone in Christ alone, right? Uh, this has been a, um, a tension in the Bible that people have felt for centuries. Uh, uh, even you talk about the Protestant Reformation, it, it hinged in part on the reconciliation of this tension, uh, because if you have people on one end saying that it's, it's faith plus works that save you, uh, and then people on the other end, it's like, oh, no, it's in faith alone and Christ alone, as Martin Luther's pressing these things, James 2 starts to become a little sticky, right? So what do we do? Uh, how do we reconcile the tension? Uh, this goes back to, again, what we were talking about with context. If you read both of these verses, uh, Romans 3.28 and James 2.24, out of context and at face value, there's definitely a problem on our hands. But if you dive into the context, and again, this is like biblical interpretation 101. The Bible interprets the Bible. So we always wanna use the Bible to interpret the Bible. The faith that James is talking about is the kind of faith that does not have works, okay? So that faith, that kind of faith is the kind of faith, in quotes, that demons have. They know that God is one true God and that he will judge the world, okay? So even the demons know and they shudder, All right? So that's uh, 19. You believe that God is one good, even the demons believe and they shudder. But that's not justifying faith, right? Like that's a, it's not justifying faith. And, and, and to unpack this, we have to understand the reference that he's talking about in uh, verses 21 and 22, 23 in, in the person of Abraham. So both Paul and James quote the same verse. Uh, Genesis 15, six, you can write that down, but uh, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So it's bolded in my Bible in verse 23. So they both use that, okay? Again, which makes it kind of sticky, right? Because it's like, are they coming to different conclusions based off the same verse in the Old Testament? What James is referring to in verse uh, 21 and 22 is Genesis 22 when... Uh, when Abraham was called to sacrifice Isaac. Uh, this was an act of obedience. This was a, a, a work of sorts, right? So uh, this took place, Genesis 22 obviously took place after Genesis 15. This would have been uh, several decades after Genesis 15. Uh, therefore, Abraham's obedience in Genesis 22 took place after decades of believing and waiting on God's promises. So Abraham was justified by, by faith alone, but his faith did not remain alone. It led to action and obedience to the God he served. So uh, oftentimes, um, uh, so we do launch point actually in this room, right? And um, what I'll do is I will, uh, I'll pull out this, this whiteboard and, uh, and, I'll, and I'll talk through the gospel. Every, the first week of every launch point, we walk through the gospel. And, and honestly, as I'm walking through the gospel, I really, I, I think of Romans the beginning of Romans, the beginning of Ephesians. I, th I think of uh, man, God, Jesus. Uh, 
right? So I, uh, I unpack the orthodoxy that Paul unpacks, but man is uh, messed up. We have a problem on our hands, right? Uh, we are sinful. We are, are separated from a perfect and holy God. We deserve his wrath. So uh, same stuff that Romans 1, 2, 3 is talking about. Uh, then God, you have God who's perfect and holy, uh, loving creator and all those things. Uh, so that's a problem. And then obviously Jesus is the one who's come, uh, lived the perfect life, died on the cross and uh, died the death we should have died. Now in that, uh, as I unpack that, uh, I, I get into some, um, some maybe false gospels that people have. One of them would be like faith plus good works equals salvation, right? Uh, yeah, I, I have to put my faith in Jesus, but I also have to like uh, make sure I go to church enough. I gotta make sure I take this class. I gotta make sure I get baptized. Like I have to do these things and then I get saved. Uh, maybe another one would be even just like the good work scale. It's like, as long as my good outweighs my bad, like then I might get saved. Um, and I mean, Romans would clearly show us that there's no one good, right? Uh, so the, the thing I love to do is I love to, to blow both of those up and say, uh, like the equation is simple. It's F equals S. Faith alone in Christ alone equals salvation, right? The interesting thing is, is and I'll, I'll do this sometimes, and actually in the last um, launch point I was in, I, I didn't do this, um, and somebody pointed out my table, and I'm like, okay, yeah, this is, this is good. I, I, I should always probably address this. Um, but I, I, I do the thing where I go, okay, so faith equals salvation, and then I'll do this thing where I'll go, dot, 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 plus good works, right? So it's the idea that faith alone in Christ alone is never alone. So it, it, our faith saves us, but because we've been saved and the Holy Spirit's working inside of us, we see on the other side, yeah, okay, yeah, we've been saved, but we see a, a person that's been transformed by God and who, who will live out a life of good works. So faith alone in Christ alone is never alone, right? So I think like that's a bit of like, as we look at Abraham, he, he like his faith, uh, his belief in God was present in Genesis 15. It was credited to him as righteousness, Genesis 15, six. But we saw that his faith and his belief was not alone, that he was willing to take his son uh, and sacrifice him. So James is insisting that the kind of faith that truly justifies results in transformation. It's a faith that's ultimately inseparable from good works. Okay, that's what, that's what I believe what James is saying. But when you look at Paul's words in Romans, uh, he's not referring to this Genesis 22 passages. He's re referring to that Genesis 15 moment, Genesis 15 moment. Faith credited to him as righteousness, right? So Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Um, so uh, that his faith, his belief in God was credited to him as righteousness. And ultimately like that, he was saved. Uh, and the thing that's interesting is I, I don't believe that Paul would disagree with James because if you go to a passage like Romans 4, 20 through 21, I believe that Paul would agree that Abraham grew in holiness and good works, right? So yeah, he, he had belief and faith in God, but the outworkings of that was a life of, of good works and, and, and a life towards holiness. Uh, although like Jake pointed out this morning, Abraham obviously had his scripts too. Uh, but the interesting thing is you read the rest of Paul's epistles and I think it's pretty clear that he expected obedience 
from the recipients of his letters, from those who were truly justified. So faith alone is never alone. Um, that all to say, uh, James was arguing against a wrong view of faith without works, while Paul was arguing against a wrong view of works. He was arguing against uh, like a works-based righteousness mindset. So essentially people thinking like, oh, uh, yeah, I can work my way to heaven. He's like, no, 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 it's in faith alone in Christ alone that you're saved. While James is arguing about a wrong view of faith where people are like, oh yeah, I've, I've prayed my prayer. I'm, I'm good to go, right? And you're living a life like every other unrepentant sinner around you. It's like, okay, so these things go together and, and a little one-liner here that I'll throw down. Like, all right, so Romans 3 and James 2 are not enemies. They are friends, right? Don't make enemies out of uh, what are actually friends. So they complement one another. Um, Jake, what was the thing that you were saying to me the other day when we were talking about this article? Like you were talking about like glasses and like putting on like, like that, um, like it, uh, it's like two lenses of glasses like put together to see more clearly the target in front of you. Is that, you always come up with illustrations on the spot. Then you forget them. Uh, yes, that. So, so something, like, uh, something like bifocals, right? Where you have a couple different lenses to help you see better what's in front of you. So again, uh, you don't take these things separately, you take them together. So uh, we don't, uh, in our theology, pick and choose what we like from different epistles and create theology. We always have to put them all together that the Bible interprets the Bible, the epistles help interpret the other epistles uh, and that they're always working together. So uh, essentially the, the epistles uh, are always working together to grow us. Uh, it's the same Holy Spirit that's inspiring all of these epistles. Um, so they're working together as a cohesive unit to sanctify us and bring us uh, closer to Christ. So, so that's what I have for content. I guess, I don't know what your typical, I, I guess I left 15 minutes for questions. I did way better than I thought I was going to. So I am great. So uh, do you guys have any questions or anything you guys want to di dialogue about? I, I don't know. We all know one another too, so we can just talk to you. What's up? Drew. Thanks for coming tonight, Drew. Mm-hmm. Yes. Sure. Right. Right. Uh, that's now you're getting into like the really smart uh, Christian theologians getting together, having coffee, and, and like talking about these things. Because essentially, uh, I believe the the letters that we have from Corinthians, I think it's the second and fourth letter. Um, and that we're missing the first and third. And so I can't remember how they connect the dots, but they, they connect the dots like Paul refers back to another letter or, or something like that. But it's like, but that doesn't connect to 1 Corinthians. So there must've been another letter. It was something, it's something to that effect. So people start asking the question, what happens if we find the true 1 Corinthians or the 3 Corinthians or whatever? Um, like, do we put that in the canon or not? Um, I think it's, a, to me, that question is a bit of like, uh, is, can God create something so big that he can't lift himself or something like that where I'm like, it's just, I don't believe it's gonna happen. First of all, we're gonna find that letter. I, I believe that God's given us the, the whole counsel of God that, that he desires for us to have. Um, so I think it's, a, it's, a, it's like the hypothetical question that I believe will never like come to fruition. I don't think God's gonna like 
put that in, in front of us. Uh, what do you think, Jake? Like, if we found another letter... Not that I know of. Sure. Yeah. So, so there's also letters out there that Thomas, you know, there's other letters that... Um, you know, as the Bible was being put together and, and canonized, that they had to make a decision on, like, does this, does this go in the canon of Scripture? Um, I think Thomas might be one of them. But there, there are some examples that are like, no, no, this is like, like the, the doctrine in this, like, it doesn't fit. Like, this isn't, the, it doesn't match up with, like, all these other letters that we're putting together. Um, maybe it's a bit um, like uh, the Apocrypha or, like, the Maccabees or something like that. Like, uh, uh, helpful books, maybe, and we can, like, maybe, choose whatever, but this isn't like God-breathed word in canon. So I'm not aware of any other letters from Paul. I know the hypothetical question is like the coffee question of like, if we found a letter, you know, what would we do with it? But um, I, I think what we have, uh, uh, you know, is what we have in, Reve- you know, uh, we get to the end of Revelation. And I'm like, yep, I think that's all. So it's good though. Other questions or thoughts? Yes. It's true. Is that marches on with an M? Yeah. So, got it. Sure. Yep. So this, uh, so like getting into their town. Um, so for me, so this is like the hermeneutics class I took and, um, uh, grasping God, God's word, that, that type of stuff. Like, how do you get into their town? I, I, like, I do believe commentaries are really helpful. Uh, cause commentaries that what they're, they're, they're boiling down a lot of information and even just like historical context that, we wouldn't, it's not common knowledge today. So you were talking today about um, the, um, like how people would make wine and then like the threshing and all of those things. It's like, okay, that's a, that's not common knowledge today. Like that's not, most people wouldn't know that. So I do think commentaries help, help boil that stuff down. So expositors, Bible commentaries is a really helpful one that I use and all of those things. So, um, but, uh, but I do think, um, I think it's com- uh, commentaries, but I really, I, it, you got to keep letting the Bible interpret the Bible too. You know, even just like uh, reading through the books of Acts always help you, helps you give context for like, even as Paul's going from uh, town to town and all those things, why, why was he in Philippi and what happened in Philippi? What happened in Ephesus? What was kind of the state there? I think those are helpful things. They're not everything, but um, did you say anything else to that, Jake, their town?
Right. Number three? Oh, dude, you almost had a hat trick. <laughs> yes, please. Mitch, yes. Also with an M, it sounds like. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so, uh, so the Hebrews is the argument is you know did Paul write it or not? I lean towards towards no on that. Um, some of these other ones though, um, you get into like Jude, um, books like that. First and uh, Second Peter, First, Second, Third John. Um, again, uh, probably most epistles follow the orthodoxy and forms orthopraxy because Paul wrote a lot of them, and it seemed like that was kind of his cadence on a lot of these things. Um, but it also seemed like, again, it's, it's almost a bit intuitive, I think, for people also, too, to, like, to start with the foundation of, well, even, like, gosh, this is, it blows me away, and, like, like, secular people stumble upon biblical principles. So Simon Sinek wrote a book, Start With Why, right? So the, the whole, con- the, he wrote a whole book that was like, okay, before you tell people to do something, always start with why is this even important? Inspire people. I'm like, I think that's actually what Paul's doing in a lot of his letters. He's starting with like, what, uh, you know, uh, don't have any sexual immorality or greed or impurity th- uh, among you in Ephesians 5.3. It's like, he's not going to say that without first saying why. Like, why is this important? So, so I think there's something intuitively that we like that, that, that's in us. So it's like, oh, we start with why and then we, we unpack it. Um, but again, it's, it's the general expression throughout most of the epistles. But there's also, there is like, James and first John where it's, it's not gonna, not gonna be that. So I don't know. I have to go through the timeline and all those things to see, uh, if that was the case or if it was like maybe Paul and Peter rub shoulders. If it was like, you know, that common, whatever that is like, okay, well, this is kind of how we, the flow of our letters, but yeah. Yeah, I don't like, that's the thing. I'm like, I don't know as Paul's writing, if he's like, this is going to be the inspired word of God, <laughs> you know, I don't, I don't know or whatever. Like, is this going to pe- carry on through generations? What I do know is that they would pass around letters town to town. So when I went uh, overseas, uh, gosh, I'm, I'm going to, it's like Laodicea, maybe Colossae and uh, Ephesus or something They're like two or three that were pretty close to one another. And so there's also a letter out to, for your question, Drew, I believe there's a letter out to Laodicea because um, in one of the epistles, Paul says, he refers to a letter to Laodicea or something like that. Uh, but it, but it, 
but he said in the letter, like, be sure to pass this around. So, uh, so, so it's specific, but I also think it's, um, like it, what you, maybe what you're saying, like broad enough where it's going to apply to a lot of different people. I don't know if Paul knew the ripple effects of what he was writing at the time, uh, but God did. And so that's the whole Holy Spirit at work probably, but yeah, oh, that's good. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Only people with M's can ask questions. Yeah, yeah. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, that, that stuff's helpful. Um, I think that's an option. I, but even just like context, though, the thing that I think people, gets people in a lot of trouble is that it's the verse out of the context of even just like where, like the chunk it's in within that, that letter. So even if you just like, in the, a lot of Bibles have those subheadings, right? Even if you just read like that portion, it's gonna dial you in more, right? So there, there's layers to all this that you could do. So you could do that. You could read the whole epistle or whatever. There's also really helpful tools that, gosh, if you wanna know the context in seven to nine minutes, you just Google, now you just YouTube Bible Project James and you're dialed in to the overflow, like the, the flow of the whole book. Um, but like the, the beginning of a study Bible is gonna be helpful in that, um, but it, it's, it's the right discipline to have because I, gosh, you see verses on coffee mugs all the time. And you're like, I don't know if you know what that means, <laughs> like, you know, or what that was pulled from and all those things. So uh, you got more thoughts? Good. Yeah, right. You win. Trump card every time. That, that did, it really did, like, as we were teaching through Hebrews, like, you talk about cross-referencing, like, the whole book of Hebrews is cross-referencing the whole Testament, like, the whole time. So, so I felt that a lot as we were going through Hebrews, which is good, and it was a good discipline for me. But, I, like, so maybe the last thought we can be done, it's at 9 o'clock, but the, the grasping God's word, like, the, the, the five-step thing that it's gotten there, but to start off in their town, what is their town? You, you measure the width of the river, uh, I'm getting into all this stuff, but, like, how, uh, like, the differences between their town and our town with that particular thing, whatever. Uh, then there's the, um, uh, uh, what's the bridge called? The, uh, principalizing bridge. But then after you get to the other side of the principal principalizing bridge, it, it says now, now like check the biblical map. It, like I just have this picture in my mind of like some kind of map where it's like, okay, now, now what you just interpreted, like your interpretation, that bridge, does it match up with the rest of scripture? And I would say even like maybe the rest of that uh, section, you know, does it, does it match? Or is it like, ooh, this, I think this is off. Uh, and, and I think that's a really good, helpful checkpoint for us uh, as we study God's word is, is like, okay, is this lining up with, with what I'm seeing in God's word? So, All right, 902. Nailed it. All right. Thanks, guys. This is great. <laughs>